Hey, you're a scientist, right? So uh, I have a question. What would you do if you had a time machine? <coughs> a time machine? Yeah. Um, from a scientist's point of view, I mean, you can go backwards, forwards. Uh, where would you go? Meaningless question. <laughs> time machine. Time travel. The kind of time travel that you're thinking of is a scientific impossibility. It would violate the second law of thermodynamics. Uh, but what about a wormhole? Oh! Well, I was watching Nova and Alan Alda seemed to think. Oh, well then, Alan Alda, he's the expert. Oh, Christ, are you kidding me? Quantum mechanics, we're discussing that now? Stay in your lane. The story is told, though who can say if it be true, of a clan of medieval warriors awoken in modern-day Manhattan, of the animated series that told their story. It is an age of darkness, superstition and the sword rule. It is an age of fear. It is the age of gargoyles. Welcome to Voices from the Eerie, a Gargoyles podcast. Hello and welcome to Voices from the Eerie, a Gargoyles podcast. I'm Zach Joyner, the owner of the website that powers the program, Spidey-Dude.com. And I am the executive producer of the network that powers the program, the Spidey Dude Radio Network. Before we get started, though, I wanted to thank our patrons at Patreon.com slash Network, Greg, Jurgen, Vinkman, Scott, Kaylee, and Phoenician. Thank you for your support. And if you want to get the show, this show earlier, check it out there, as well as other fine perks that you'll get whenever you become a Patreon subscriber. There will be some exclusive content that's only for Patreon subscribers coming to you very soon. But before I turn it over to our hosts, I want to encourage you to check out our other fine programs, such as Spidey Dude Experience, ASM Classics, Make Mine Mayday, Bogan Rider Variety Hour, the Salby Sima Era Podcast, Clone Saga Chronicles, and a Spectacular Radio, a Spectacular Spider-Man related show that starred a few familiar names to the program. Please follow the network on Twitter at Spidey Dude Radio and this show at From Erie, and feel free to send them feedback at gargoylesvoices at gmail.com. Leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast catcher, such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, iHeartRadio Podcasts, Amazon Audible, as well as Google Podcasts. It helps us raise our vis- visibility and like, share, and subscribe for more at Spidey Dude Network, youtube.com slash Spidey Dude Network. Also, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, as I mentioned the Twitter threads, but also follow us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Network, as well as Instagram, if you like Instagram, instagram.com slash Network. With that out of the way, it's absolutely my pleasure to introduce the hosts of our show, Jennifer L. Anderson and Greg Bashansky. Welcome to another episode of Voices from the Erie, Gargoyles fans. I'm your co-host, Greg Wyshansky, and rejoining me is my partner in crime, Jennifer L. Anderson. Hello once again. And joining us again is the series co-creator, supervising producer, and the writer of the SLG and the upcoming Dynamite comic books, Mr. Greg Wiseman. Hi, everyone. And we are very happy to introduce... To the fandom at large, 
one of the people who helped make the new comic book from Dynamite Comics possible, the editor on the comic, Mr. Nate Cosby. Uh, you've actually got me wrong. I, I'm now called Greg Cosby. <laughs> <laughs> part of it's part of it's peer pressure. Part of it's just my love of gargoyles. But gargoyles Cosby doesn't sound right. So I'm 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 Greg. I'm Greg Cosby. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. Let's get your ruler in here too. Thank you very much for joining us, and uh, we would like to get to know you. Um, what's your background with this property? Um, how long have you been a fan? Man, um, you know, I, I don't think uh, I don't think Mr. Wiseman knows this, but there was a time in my life. I'm I'm from Mississippi, and my family would often drive to Birmingham, Alabama, to go hang out at the Galleria, uh, this gigantic behemoth of a mall. And one of my clearest memories were was. Uh, Right around the time where I was becoming a teenager, where maybe parents would say, hey, stop, you know, stop reading all those comics and stop watching cartoons and stuff like that. I went to a store and I was uh, my eyes instantly went to a purple hat with a black brim that had the silhouette of uh, Goliath that said gargoyles on it. And I, I just I said to my dad, I want that. I want to wear that to school. And he said, you're just you're just getting a little too old for that kind of stuff. And I think about that every time I get an email from Greg, uh, <laughs> it's like, apparently not. Apparently I was not no. for that stuff. Uh, so, so yeah, I, uh, had a gargoyles hat. It was a baseball cap, but it had the gargoyles logo on the front. And, mm-hmm. uh, I went on this trip to China to an animation convention in China. And, um, Somehow or other, the hat didn't make it back from China, and it was like this tragedy in my life um, that I lost my gargoyles hat. It made me very sad. Because there couldn't have been too many, right? Like I've Googled, uh, I just just for fun recently, I've Googled to see if I could find that same Goliath hat, and they are there's very few of them. So I can't imagine that it was. I can't imagine it was a situation where oh, I lost my hat. I'll just go. I'll go to the hat closet and get one of those out of there. You know, the gargoyles yeah. It's very sad. Very uh, sad. If it makes you feel any better, though, my dad used to, every summer I'd go away to camp, and my dad used to throw away all my comic books. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But like, uh, okay, this is when I can get rid of them. Um, um, I remember at one point I was like, I, I came in with less than stellar grades, and my mom came in, and pulled down my, uh, you know, my Howard Porter JLA poster, my Umberto Ramos Impulse poster. They all came down off the wall so I could focus on my studies. <laughs> Ouch. In parenting. She did many good things, but that was, I would not call that effective. <laughs> yeah. No. Nope. Well, and I later told my dad, do you know how much of my college education, those comics that you threw away could have paid for? Mm-hmm. And the truth is probably not much of anything, but I made him think that he had thrown away, you know, comics, you know, he would read about action comics, number one, selling for a zillion dollars. Right. He had no idea what he had thrown away, what issues I had or didn't have. (laughs) So I was able to convince him that, yeah, and that's what you threw away. (laughs) Oh, no. So sorry. Nice. (laughs) I'm not a Batman 272 or whatever had the same uh, uh, 
financial cachet that some of the ones he was reading about had, but um, I didn't let him in on that fact. That wasn't great, uh, me being a son, but there you go. (laughs) (laughs) Parental revenge is the sweetest revenge, no doubt. Right. Completely. So, um, how did this deal with um, Dynamite and Disney for Gargoyles come about? What's the origin of this? I'm, I hate to ask this question, but I've seen it around different corners of the fandom, so I feel that I should. A lot of people would have expected Marvel to take this on, since Marvel is a uh, subsidiary of Disney now, and, um, but it's going to a third party. Yeah, I mean, I'll 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 tell you my my part of it. I, I just became aware that uh, my contacts at Dynamite. I, I run my own production company, Lenny Incorporated, and I, I I do a lot of work with uh, Dynamite. And you know, they they let me know it's been a, probably close to a couple years now that um, that there was this 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 um, section of Disney properties that was going to be available for for publishing and, and creation and, and gargoyles was always going to be part of that. And I, from the very jump, I was like, I want to be involved. Like I want, I want that one. Like we can, we can talk, we can discuss all the other ones, but this is the one I want. And luckily there were no, uh, no, no, nobody else at dynamite shared my, uh, intense enthusiasm. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of circumstances of, I don't really know how the Marvel Disney connection stuff works as far as that, you know, like I know, like I believe Marvel still publishes some star Wars stuff, but it's, it's, it's also concurrently there's, I think some either IDW or dark horse stuff. That's that's star Wars comics that are published. So, you know, and, and then I think there's also some different, some different duck related like Donald duck, uncle Scrooge kind of stuff that goes to different parties. So, I, I don't know. I think I think Disney books, Disney publishing is is a totally separate entity from Marvel at this point and and they just kinda do their own thing separate from Marvel. Interesting. Yeah, that makes sense. And that's pretty much what I thought was going on. But we're really grateful that it happened and we're definitely grateful that you brought on Greg to continue his saga because usually when something like this happens I'm, I'm grateful. <laughs> We're nervous it's someone who doesn't know the property quite as well or someone who loves the property but doesn't quite understand the property gets a hold of it and you never know that might not turn out as well. Yeah, I uh I mean I'll tell you I have my list right here of like the possible writers I had for this project and it starts with uh Greg Wiseman and then the, I'm just kidding, it's Greg Wiseman. That's the <laughs> list I was ever going to approach to work on this. Cause I knew he was still doing comics and I knew he was still around. And I just, I had to fight to find his email. I think I emailed him like by accident four times within a span of two days. And, uh, and he was, he was out for a couple of days. So I don't think I heard from him, but, uh, but yeah, from, from the very jump, I, I just like, it, it just makes all of the sense in the world knowing that he would want to continue that or hoping that he would want to continue this. And then when I found out that he did just, I mean, there's, it's just I'm I'm so lucky to be able to you know to really like continue this like in in whatever you want to call it like in continuity canon but just to be able to tell the real continued story of of this world the characters. You really had to twist his arm though, didn't you? Oh, it was <laughs> was there oh. was there begging? There was begging, wasn't there? <laughs> and I'll give you two dollars. What what more can I give? <laughs> 
Nice. And there's been quite a bit of I news. So much respect. <laughs> there's been quite a bit of news about the comic in this past week. It feels like there's interviews going up with you, Greg, and with George. Uh, I cannot pronounce his last name. How do you say it? I'm, I know it's Greek. <laughs> Combadeus, George. Combadeus. Combadeus. Yeah, no, George. Also, Combe- for the rest, yeah, for the rest of this podcast, if you could call me Greg Combadeus. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I'll just give up both of my names. I don't care. I love gargles that much. And we were glad to see that it's going to be going up digitally as well. The last comic SLG, I don't think, had the license to do digital comics. But to be fair to them, digital comics were relatively were, new at the time. Yeah, were there. Were there digital comics back when we did the SLG run? There were. I remember because I asked Vado about that at the convention. He said that wasn't part of their license at the time. All right. It was definitely in in the early days of digital comics, though. Yeah, we just uh, tweeted that out on the Voices from the ERA Twitter account, so hopefully people who don't have a comic shop near them will still be able to get a hold of it. They should be able to get a hold of it. And uh, tell us a little bit, at least as much as you're willing to say, about the uh, first arc. Both of you. I'll leave that to Greg. Well, the other Greg. The third Greg. Third Greg, you tell them about it. I don't want to give it away. I'm by far the oldest Greg in this room. Whatever your names are, I'm still the oldest. Alpha Uh, Greg? I think (laughs) So, yeah, I'm Alpha Greg right here. (laughs) Elder Greg. I'll go for <laughs> um, Oh, now you sound like you're from Book of Mormon. No, that won't do. Come on. No, yeah, that's right. That's not good. Um, what can I tell you about the first arc that, you know, isn't a spoiler? Uh, nothing. So, uh, no, what I'll say is what I've said in the press, which is that, um, you know, we are picking the story up. Uh, after uh, the 65 episodes of the first two seasons, you know, the two seasons of Gargoyles and the SLG comics. Um, it's a few months after the end of the SLG run. Uh, everything that you need to know will be reestablished in the new Dynamite comics. So if you've never seen a single episode of Gargoyles, if you've never read a single issue of any previous comics, you won't be lost because anything you need to know will be established when you need to know it. It doesn't mean that we're going to spend, you know, eight issues just going through history. Um, there are certain things that literally will be like, Hey, this is this character complicated backstory. We'll get to that later. You don't need to know it yet, you know, kind of thing. Um, but anything you need to know to enjoy the stories that you're in the middle of that will be, uh, reestablished so that because we really wanted this both Nate and I and I'm sure not that I've talked to anyone at Dynamite but um, I'm sure all the people at Dynamite and Disney as well you know really wanted this to be an entry point for new fans as well as a continuation for old fans um, so our first story uh, is about uh, the birth of the first mutate baby um, uh, Talon and Maggie. Uh, Talon is uh, Elisa's brother, Derek, and Maggie, the cat, Maggie Reed, um, are mutates that were created by Savarius and Xanatos back in the TV series, um, and they became a couple, and now Maggie's having a baby, 
and um, are gonna, that's going to cause all sorts of complications. And while that's going on, we're also um, introducing a major new villain in the first few issues um, who's going to have a real impact on the Manhattan crime world because our first arc is called Here in Manhattan, and that's the first dozen issues. Um, and uh, it's about how the gargoyles are integrating into New York society or not integrating as the case may be. <laughs> um, and uh, what's going on in that world uh, as a way to, um, again, uh, both reintroduce the characters to old fans and introduce the characters to new fans. And that's what's going to be happening um, in the book. I finished writing the first three scripts and I am partway through uh, issue four and I plotted four and five in detail. Um, and I have a very clear plan for six through 12 as well, but I haven't like sort of page by page plotted them yet. Okay. Nate or, um, AKA Greg number three. Um, when you first like, okay, you finally got, get a hold of Greg and Weissman and you, um, you say, hey, you want to come do this comic with us? And he says, yes. What What's going through your mind at that point? What did you uh, see happening? Yeah, I, I just, I mean, I was just elated for one thing, where it's just like, uh, because if he did, if he said no, I just like, oh, my God, like, where do we, like, okay, I guess I'll, I'll create a list somehow. But I, I never, you know, that, that, that never came to be. But you know, it, it, I'll honestly like say it, it's, it's so rare to have somebody with Greg's like just undying enthusiasm for a world and a story. You know, I, I, I think it's so easy to get jaded in this kind of, in this kind of business where it's just like uh, permissions and notes and availabilities and licenses and contracts. Like you can get really mired down into all this stuff, but like from the very beginning when Greg said yes, like, like just hitting the ground running with all of these different concepts and ideas. Um, and I, you know, I, in, in full honesty, like I, I didn't really know the width and breadth of what all had come in comic form after the show. Um, I, I knew that the first two seasons were of the, of the show were, were considered, you know, like, like Canon. And the third one was, was something kind of different. And I knew that the Marvel series back in the day, um, was also not really like directly involved with anybody that was creating the show, but I didn't know about any, any of the other comic stuff. So knowing that there was this rich backstory that we could pull from was great to know. But as Greg noted, you know, it, it, it's really important for me personally, just to, to try to create comics that are accessible to the, to the widest possible audience, basically giving the audience a chance to be able to, you know, to, to get what's going on, but not make them feel like they're spoon fed. Um, I think there's a there's a lot of uh, Greg and I discuss stuff like Astonishing X-Men number one and All-Star Superman number one is like, wow, these are like really well-known characters and worlds that are kind of like there's this kind of soft reboot or a soft establishment of like, hey, this is, you know, these are the basics of what we're what we're about to deal with on this journey. And Greg has been uh, he's been doing a really great job of figuring out you know, how do we, how do we softly reintroduce everybody to this world? I, I've, 
for my part, I've, I've, I hope I've helped in the sense of like being a sounding board of like, okay, but like, like, I don't, I don't know what that is. Can you help me <laughs> understand what that is? Or like, we don't have enough of this, or maybe we're not introducing enough up front um, because I don't really, I don't have a context for where we are. And then he explains it and then, and then comes back with something that's even better. Um, but yeah, it, 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 it's just been from the very beginning, it was, it, it just being able to ride the enthusiasm and being able to continue this kind of stuff is, it's just been a delight. So, yeah. How about those covers? They're beautiful. They're beautiful. Absolutely. The original original Marvel series, you know, Amanda Connor, the incredibly famous and amazing Amanda Connor, her first gig at Marvel was the Gargoyles comic. And so that was, that was one of my first uh, emails for covers as well, because I knew she and Jimmy Palmiotti, her, uh, her inker and husband, uh, were, are, were and still are big into Gargoyles. So that was, that was an easy call. David Nakayama, George Kamadeus doing his own cover. Um, Jay Lee, who, who I love. Um, Lucio Perillo. It's, uh, and uh, Tony Fleeks and Trish Forstner. So far, uh, to say nothing of the dozens and dozens of retailer covers that I've been lucky enough to be showing Disney these past couple weeks. But, uh, yeah, it's it, it's been a pleasure. It, it, you know, it, it's been really nice. I, you know, you, you, I, I'd not worked directly with Disney a whole lot before, so I, I knew that their approval process can, can sometimes take a while and stuff like that. But they've been really open to interpretation of the characters and stuff like that, which is which is really fun to see different views of of what these uh what these different characters look like amazing artist lineups there man great are we going to see multiple covers for issues moving forward or is this just for the first issue yeah everybody that did a first uh, issue cover is locked in for at least the first six issue arc so you'll oh, see all nice <laughs> oh my gosh yeah. they're gonna take all our money is basically what you say <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean I, t- I know you're not going to say anything, but I did tweet out a few weeks ago. These are all really cool, but let's see some of these covers and artistic interpretation of the villains, your Xanatoses, your Demonas, your Thalogs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. <laughs> I will not spoil it, but David Nakayama's number two cover will uh, will make you happy. I'm sure. Excellent. I'm really looking forward to seeing it. Jen, do, you, do we have any other questions about the comic and? What to expect? <laughs> all I can think about is all the covers right now. <laughs> nice. Well, we're just asking you to buy the same comic seven times in a month. I have I never done that with any other comic before. Never with Marvel, never with DC, never with Dark Horse, never with anything. But I, you know, I'm going to use this word. I am such a whore for this property <laughs> that I am doing this. Greg knows. Wiseman knows. He's known me for a while. <laughs> Let's see, that's what we should have called the podcast. Gargoyles Horrors. There we go. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We do also have an episode to discuss. Uh, Nate, did you rewatch it with us? I did. I did. I tried to memorize the the incantation before the portal and orb kind of thing opens up. I thought that would be a fun thing to say first, but I completely forgot to write it down. So. Deslagrate. Deslagrate. I've got a I mean, I'm telling, I'm, I, obviously, I'm the one person, <laughs> person of this podcast. Of 
I will say, Greg, I don't know if you, Alpha Greg, I don't know if you wrote this episode exactly, um, but I saw your associate producer on it, or executive, which one were you, associate or executive, I'm sorry. Uh, I think Frank and I were both, at this stage, supervising producers, but we okay. might have just been producers. But okay. I, Frank and I were the showrunners, co-showrunners. Right, right. Well, whoever whoever shouted out Bar Harbor, Maine, it's like, great job. That's where I went to running camp when I was in college. Thanks. Really? Uh, well, that came from me, but, it, I, but that's because I had a friend uh, in those days, uh, Bryant, uh, who was from Bar Harbor, and I didn't really know Maine. I'm from Los Angeles, and I don't know Maine all that well. But oh, I yeah. knew one person from Bar Harbor, Maine, so that's where Xanatos is from. <laughs> I stayed at the Peach House at the College of the Atlantic in Bar Harbor, Maine, uh, and ran and ran for an entire week with uh, with these people that usually trained Olympians. And I got my wow. Yeah, that sounds exhausting out there. I was in Bar Harbor last year. I went with my girlfriend for a vacation, <laughs> so it's like, oh, this is gargoyles. Thanks, Bar Harbor. Yeah, I just uh, we'll get back to it. I just got back from Orlando before the hurricane hit Disney World. I did wear a Gargoyles t-shirt, and several people recognized it. And I'm going to brag. One person tried to tell me about the comics, and you know what? I pretended I didn't know. Go on, go on. And there was another person who told me about this podcast, and I played dumb. I think that takes a lot of fortitude to play dub. I, I really do. I mean, like, I, I, I there's no way I wouldn't have bragged. Yeah, I mean, I wear a gargoyles t-shirt fairly often because I have 34 of them. Um, no hats and no hats, but I have 34 t-shirts. Um, and uh, you know, someone will notice it occasionally and go, "Oh, that was a great show," and I usually just go, "Thank you." Uh, <laughs> nice. And they look at you like, "Are you? Are you? Are you?" They're like, "You're Alpha Greg, aren't you?" <laughs> um, no, usually they just look at me confused, like, "Why is this guy taking credit for this show that I love?" Um, <laughs> nice. <laughs> anyway, circling back around vows, or as I like to call it, three weddings and a divorce. So, Greg, we'll, we'll talk about the biggest element of the episode first. You're introducing the Phoenix Gate and the rules of time travel. How did that come about, and why these rules? I just want to say, though, that on a personal note, I've seen time travel's logic uses in other shows and comics, especially at the time. I'm not going to name them, so this felt like a breath of fresh air. I mean, there were a few things that went into it. One is, is that we had gotten a note from my boss at the time, Gary Kreisel, on some of the earlier episodes, season one episodes, really, not about the finished ones, not the versions that people saw on screen, but on some of the early drafts of outline and stuff like that, where Gary's noted in something along the lines of, it feels like the whole episode is building to something that it, you know, not enough is happening in it, that there's just, all this build, 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 and then, you know, you have to wrap it up in the last three or four minutes. So I get things going quicker. And that was a note I really took to heart. So one of the things, I mean, I, it's interesting. I, I didn't write this episode. It was written by Sherry Goodhartson, 
um, story edited by Michael Reeves. But I think of all the episodes up to this point, not counting the five-part pilot, which I co-plotted with Paul Lacey, um, this is probably the one that I did the most sort of plotting on. Um, because the original outline I got from Sherry and Michael, basically the, it was act one of this story. Um, there's no time travel. The talisman that they're talking about is basically a magical MacGuffin that never really gets used. Um, it wasn't a time travel device or anything like that. It was just, uh, you know, some powerful item that Demona tries to get in and, does succeed in getting, but then um, Goliath manages to get it back. Um, and so it was like the whole episode in the original outline is basically what you see in Act 1 of, of the version that made it to the screen. And so when I read that outline with Gary's notes still in my head from Season 1, I was like, you know, I, I don't think we're doing enough here. I, it doesn't. Gargoyles is a very dense show. Um, in terms of story content. And um, I feel now, felt then, that, that it wasn't a dense enough story what Sherry and Michael had given me. So I crushed down in my memo to them, which was my notes and response, their whole three-act structure and crushed it into one act and then said, let's make this talisman into something. And let's make it a time travel device. And that'll give us an excuse to go back to Castle Wyvern and um, in, you know, the, in medieval times and in the dark ages. And, um, and we can really have some fun with it. But I had personally this issue with time travel stories in a lot of shows, particularly in shows like Star Trek The Next Generation, which I adored. I mean, a lot of shows that I really liked, but I felt, you know, were constantly sort of cheating on their own logic. And so I felt, all right, if we're going to introduce time travel into Gargoyles, let's make the rules about as rigid as they could possibly be. And the idea is that history cannot be changed. Now, recorded history may be incomplete or you know, if the victor writes history, you know, they may have uh, spun it to their advantage kind of thing. And they may have left out things, like left out the gargoyle's role in history or that kind of thing. But actual true history, that can't be changed. And so that everything would have to fit together in a kind of perfect loop, a working paradox. And the key thing is to understand the difference between these two different time travel sci-fi concepts. One is a working paradox um, or a non-working paradox. And the non-working paradox probably everyone's heard of. It's the sometimes called the butterfly thing or the grandfather paradox, which is that you go back in time to kill your grandfather before your father was born and you kill your grandfather and thus your father is never born, so you're never born, and thus there's no one to go back to kill your grandfather. But if no one goes back to kill your grandfather, then your grandfather is the father of your father, and the father is the father of you, and then you exist, and you can go back and kill your grandfather, which you do. And so it goes in this circle, but it's non-working. It, 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 
in essence, it, the pieces don't all fit together. Um, it, it, it should, in essence, break the history as opposed to fix it, right? But a working paradox, the example I've always used, which I made up, is, is uh, the Emancipation Proclamation Paradox, which is that um, you're a big fan of Abraham Lincoln, and especially uh, you thought the Emancipation Proclamation is this brilliant speech, so you go back in time because you want to witness this Lincoln delivering this speech. And you meet Lincoln on the train heading down to Gettysburg, and Lincoln is just suffering from writer's block. He has no clue what to say at uh, Gettysburg. Um, and so panicked that this script will never exist, you hand him or recite to him what you've memorized, the Emancipation Proclamation, and Abe's like, wait, let me write this down. And he writes it down, and you're reciting it to him, and he writes down the Emancipation Proclamation, which then he delivers in Gettysburg. Uh, I'm sorry, I keep saying Emancipation Proclamation. I'm talking about the Gettysburg Address. Wow, that's embarrassing. But <laughs> at least I was saying Gettysburg. But, uh, yeah, I meant the Gettysburg Address, which is a brilliant speech, and I'm a moron. But anyway, um, so Lincoln gives the Gettysburg Address, and reporters take it down, and it's written into history books, and it goes down to this time traveler in the future who goes back in time and gives this speech to Lincoln. And this is a working paradox. No one knows who created the actual, who authored the Gettysburg Address. It's not the time traveler. He got it out of the history books. It's not Lincoln. Lincoln got it from the time traveler. It's not the history writers. They got it from Lincoln. So who wrote this um, actual speech? And the answer is, it just exists in time. It's a paradox, but it's a working paradox. It doesn't disconnect the way the killing of the grandfather disconnects the killer from its victim. Do you see what I mean? I hope you do, because I don't want to repeat it. Um, <laughs> no, it makes sense. So uh, that's what... I decided we wanted to do with gargoyles is we wanted, we could use working paradoxes. We could use Gettysburg address style paradoxes. We could not use grandfather paradoxes or non-working paradoxes um, to make this stuff happen. So um, if Goliath and Demona and the Xanatos family goes back in time, that's because that happened in the past. And Thus, Demona, as she says at the end of the episode, she remembered the speech that Goliath gave to her younger self. And unfortunately, it didn't change anything. And that's okay, because that is Demona's classic flaw, you know, is that she um, refuses to change. Um, and so all that fits together in this nice sort of perfect loop in a way that um, keeps the history flowing. So you, if you can kind of picture a straight line, you just loop it and then it overlaps the line for a little bit and then it continues on forward. Um, and sometimes that can be hard to describe to writers and uh, storyboard artists and stuff like that. Uh, there was a reason that I felt we needed to have these sort of uh, guideposts along the way. So. Owen has a line just after 
the travelers leave the present for the past. And I was like, we've got to have Owen repeat that line when they come back. So we get a sense of when they're coming back to the present, exactly when it, it's happening. Owen said the line just after they departed. Then after just having said the line, they show up as if, you know, basically from Owen's point of view, they were only gone for two seconds, even though from their point of view, they were gone for hours. Right. And having those signposts along the way, there's one with Hudson too, where at the beginning of the episode in Goliath's sort of dream memory, um, Demona and Goliath, young Demona and young Goliath come together and uh, Demona is just so glad to see young Goliath alive and well. And young Goliath has no idea why she's reacting so strongly. Like I just saw you five minutes ago. I don't know what's going on here. Um, uh, but he's like, we'll be late for the wedding. And Hudson's like, go ahead, go to the wedding. And then you see that again at the end. Um, because we need the audience to understand where all the pieces fit. And so that kind of stuff was sort of structurally important to me. Um, and I think it gives us richer stories. Now, what comes out of that from a lot of fans is there's no free will. And I'm like, that's not true. And they're like, but they don't have a choice. Everything's already decided already. And I'm like, no, there's free will, um, but there are also, you know, rules, you know, uh, and the example I usually give about that is you may, you have free will, you decide you want to fly under your own power, uh, from Los Angeles to New York. So you get up on the roof of your house and you jump off only you don't fly. You fall and crash to the ground and break both your legs. I'm like, you still had free will, <laughs> but guess what? You can't fly. Um, and it's in essence, the same thing with time travel. It's like, there are certain rules to this thing, but it doesn't change the, the fact that you can choose your own actions. Some of these actions may be dumb. Some of them may result in tragedy. Some will turn out great, but it doesn't change your ability to choose things for yourself. It just, uh, creates parameters as to what is and isn't possible. Just like the idea that you can't just leap into the air like Superman and fly all of a sudden, just cause you decide you want. I love it. <laughs> I love it. Another great thing about this episode is that it does something pretty unprecedented in Western television animation. Our lead vil- two of our lead villains get married. I mean, there's plenty of cartoons where the villain wants to marry, say, the heroine, and obviously that doesn't work out. But here, I just love seeing these two crazy kids come together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, for me, that was a lot of fun. Uh, I, You know, the relationship between Xantos and Fox was one that we discovered along the way. It wasn't uh, the original plan, not that there was a different original plan. It's just, we discovered it in the voice acting, in the way Laura Sanji Como read certain lines when she was talking about Xanatos. Um, and so we had gotten them engaged, uh, in eye of the beholder. So now it was time for them to get married. Now, of course, months later, Frank and I sat down with, uh, with Gary, our boss and, and Gary was like, hey, uh, 
haven't really been paying attention to the show. Uh, really apologize. There's just been so much going on. So just tell me about it. Tell me what's going on in the show. And we're like, oh, well, Fox and Xanatos get married and they have a kid. And he's like, oh, oh, I wouldn't do that. You can't do that. We're like, what? You know, you, you can't do that. I mean, uh, I guess the marriage is okay, although I don't like it. it, it, it it's kind of creepy to have these two villains get married. Uh, but uh, they definitely can't have a kid. Because what do you do with that kid? You can't leave the kid with the villains. They're the villains. And you can't take the kid away from his parents. You just, you can't do that. And you got to change it. And then, you know, Frank and I sort of look at each other and we turn to Gary and go, I don't think you understand. This isn't something we're talking about doing. This is something we did. Um, And there's this long pause where Gary was considering, you know, these episodes had, had been made, but hadn't been aired yet where he was considering whether he was going to, you know, tear up the whole show. Um, and then he finally sort of, I think just the prospect of it exhausted him. And so he sort of turned to us and said, well, just don't dwell on it. And we like looked at each other. I don't even know what that means. Like, I don't know what it means to dwell on it or not dwell on it. But we just turned to each other and said, oh no, we won't dwell on it. Of course we won't dwell on it. And he's like, okay, good, good. <laughs> so we just did what we had always planned to do. But, uh, um, or what we had made already. But yeah, I, I think one of the virtues that Gargoyles had throughout most of, his run, of our run is that the bosses really weren't paying attention to us, um, in part because I had been an executive there. And so I was like the trustee in a lunatic asylum. Um, I was still a patient, but they gave me a stick and said, <laughs> watch over these other nuts. Um, and... Uh, and so they just assumed that I would do the right thing all the time, which I did from my point of view, but not necessarily from their point of view. <laughs> um, and, uh, <laughs> they, and so we got away with all this stuff just because no one was paying attention and it made the show better. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely think it did. From my point of view, like the coolest thing about hearing all of that explanation right after seeing the episode, you know, we're like, and then also being able to connect to like thinking back about, you know, you, I, I've spent a lot of time thinking back, like, what is it about this show in particular that I did? I love so much like back then, I know why I like it now, but what is it that I connected to? And I think the thing, like, I, I think you get that in hearing Greg's explanation of it, which is the, the background, the premise, the motor of the story is so, is so thought over. It is it is complicated, but it is very thought through and but on the on the early end to where you don't feel like you're you're having to like spoon feed the audience dollops of how all of this stuff works. They know it and they feel confident in their knowledge of it. So that can play almost as background music and let the emotions of the characters play in the foreground, because, I mean, you know, in essence, I I. I, I was getting like four weddings and a funeral, sleepless in Seattle. You've got mail when Harry met Sally vibes with all the like, you know, like the 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 cross cutting of the different relationships and marriages and things like that. But meanwhile, you've got this complex, uh, this complex time travel thing, multiple time travelers with multiple ages and multiple eras happening, almost like background music, and and it all makes sense, and it would make sense to a twelve year old. 
And and that's you know that's one of the coolest things. I, I love Tailspin. I, I love Darkwing Duck. But like Gargoyles was the only one that was really doing that at the time. So that's that just it just kind of blows my mind that honestly that you just like you didn't talk down to kids. You know, like you you could have talked down to kids. That everybody else was talking down to kids, but you decided no, we're gonna. Do something a little more, a little more uh, sophisticated, and not worry too much about like, yeah, people. Sometimes people get married. Sometimes people have kids. These things happen. You know, there's romance. There's all this kind of stuff. It's just like, no, nah, no, nah, we're we're just gonna we're gonna treat them seriously. Yeah, it was really wasn't about talking down to kids because really it was guys like Frank and Michael, and you know Gary and Bryn and Carrie and I. Uh, we were really just making a show we would like to see. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, we wrote very consciously on layers so that, you know, for, for younger kids, there was eye candy. You got these monster heroes who were, had all these different colors and they were cool and fun. Right? The kids love Hudson. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, What's not to love? Some kids did. <laughs> I mean, you know, like and, look, you're look, you're a kid in the mid '90s. You're you're only watching Ed Grant and the Mary Tyler Moore show, and thinking like, oh man, if only that guy could be. Or who's this Hudson guy? They just gave him a sword, and everything was great. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you have explosions, you have big bursts of flaming magic, and whatever, and it's just cool, you know. So for the younger kids, it's just fun, and then there are all these levels for older kids and even adults, you know, in levels of sophistication that um, we were able to do because on the one hand, um, we weren't writing down to the kids, but we weren't just including them either. And that's what was key is that, you know, um, for example, you know, if you do a double entendre, not that I think we did one in this ep- particular episode, but one of the mistakes I see people make on occasion is that they don't actually make it a double entendre. There's only the sexual version of the line, you know. Um, it, you know, it, there's no way to interpret it except sexually. And if a, a young kid is watching and they don't understand it, then it's not like it went over their head. It's like they they understand that they've missed something, right? Um, and then they feel left out. And the trick to it is, no, there's got to be a version where the line works on a level where the kid can understand it without understanding the sexual connotation of it, right? Um, and and not just for, I mean, this. I'm using the example of double entendres because it's an obvious one, but that's how we wrote the whole show, that there would be a level for kids who don't need to know time travel theory, you know? They're just following along with the characters, and isn't this cool, right? Um, but then again, if you go to a deeper level, you know, hardcore sci-fi people who r- read and write time travel stories can watch this and go, I see what they did here, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but that, was, for us, was sort of the key, that... It wasn't about writing down to kids. It was about not leaving kids out because, you know, we had to hit our boys six to 11 target. If we missed that target, 
you know, with Kenner making toys and, and all this sort of stuff, if we miss that target, then the show just gets canceled, right? Um, because even if we've got this great adult audience watching, the people who are buying the commercials are going, you're not reaching the audience we want you to reach. Um, so we have to hit that target of boys 6 to 11. But I was never satisfied with that target. I just didn't want to leave them out. It wasn't like me saying, screw those boys 6 to 11. I want girls 19 to 25. You know, I did want girls 19 to 25, but I didn't only want them. I wanted everybody. Um, and so I think the show went down and worked for four-year-olds, frankly. Maybe not two-year-olds, but four-year-olds. Um, but it also went up to work for 80-year-olds, certainly 40-year-olds. And, and, uh, and that's because the idea was to have a, a big tent, you know, uh, where everyone felt included and no one felt, yeah, as you said, written down to at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but we were learning as I, certainly I was learning as I went because that was the first show I was a showrunner on. Um, and one of the big lessons I learned on that show is, um, you know, in the writing process, there's usually three major steps, premise, uh, outline, and script. And the thing that I learned on Gargoyles, which has been true for the entire rest of my writing career, is that for me, the key step is outline. Coming up with the springboard, the premise, the ideas, that's, that's easy, honestly. I mean, unless your property has just either been on forever or just is really unimaginative in the first place, Coming up with ideas for it, that's simple, you know. Um, so premising, that's pretty easy. Um, and, but if you nail down the outline in real clear, crisp detail, then once you go to script, that job becomes easy because you're just fleshing it out. You're bringing it to life. The problem is if your outline is weak or unclear, lacks clarity, then you get to script and you've got all these problems to solve that you didn't solve at outline. And so while you're busy solving those problems, the script itself may not be that great because you spent all your energy and frankly time, because this is always done on a deadline, right? You spent all your time figuring out how to fix the problems that the outline didn't solve. And so for us on Gargoyles, it really became about let's nail these outlines down um, really tight. And then going to script is going to be pretty easy. And that generally has worked, worked for Gargoyles and it works for, you know, work for Young Justice and works for pretty much Catwoman Hunted, anything I've done, the novels I've written, you know, to me, the key step is really about the outlining because that leaves the, the actual writing to be the fun part, you know, the scripting or the prose, whatever it is. Um, then you just get to write um, and make that, make the dialogue as good as it can be, make the, you know, this, all the, the painting you're painting as engaging as it can possibly be, but you're not still trying to figure out how to solve all the story problems that you've done already, at least if you, you know, if you're doing it right. 
And this is a really good example of that because, again, our initial outline was really thin. So I sort of crushed it down and then broke out the second two acts with this time travel story in pretty um, in a pretty detailed way. And then Sherry and Michael turned it around into a fantastic script. I mean, I, I don't want to take credit from them. They did a fantastic job executing it. But, you know, a lot of the, all the problems were solved. And this was a complicated one because of the time travel. All the problems were solved at the outlines. Yeah, I, I, I think it's really interesting that you talk about the idea of like really nailing the background and getting, getting that structure, getting all those things in place. You know, I, because you, you, you say you talk to, I agree with you. Like premise is so easy. Like it, it's one of the easiest aspects of, of telling a story and doing this. I thought of a lot about this as I've recently been watching Andor and really enjoying it by, uh, you know, by the Gilroy brothers who I have a lot of time for. And I, I, I just think about like, taste and intention and execution of a premise right it's like yeah anybody can tell a story about some flying creatures and time travel and that kind of thing but you know it it has to do with the particular the particular people working and deciding well what's the most important parts and what are the rules of this particular sandbox that we're working in and how are we going to show the audience what we're trying, you know, what we're trying to, what are, how are we going to show them what we want them to see? Are we going to be able to let our intention shine without being too blatant about it and make it about the process of, uh, of, you know, the, the, the process of the storytelling and less just about like, eh, we're just putting on a show, like really caring, really giving a shit. And it just showed like gargoyles and, and stuff written by, uh, the Gilroy's like it, it just also, you know, like the anim Batman, the animated series that was coming out around the same time as, as this too, where it's just like, yeah, any, like this, this thing's going to exist, whether somebody cares or not, but when somebody really cares and you can tell that people are behind the scenes, like fretting, thinking, spending so much sweat equity, trying to figure out the rules of these worlds that it just shows up in the show. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's really impressive. Every once in a while, modern day, I'm like, uh, oh, this one I kind of know. I'm just going to wing it. And every time I find, oh, that was a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like, you know, you think, and I fool myself on occasion into uh, thinking, uh, I've been doing this for a long time now. And I have, you know, decades, right? Mm -hmm. Um and so every once in a while, I fool myself into thinking, yeah, I got the gist of it in my head. I'll just, let me just start writing now. I'm in the mood. Let me just, and every single time I do that, I'm like, nope, nope, nope. Starting over, starting over. Um, yeah. <laughs> Some people, that's just not, yeah, that's just not your, that's not your skill set. That's not where you excel. You're, you're, you're the deep deep ideas, make sure the whole device makes sense, all that kind of, we've, we've had, and I'm not giving anything away, but like you and I have had these discussions about this script stuff where like, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about a scene and then you're already talking about like, well, but if we change this scene, then this is my impression of you, by the way. Well, if we do this scene, then two scenes <laughs> later, I got to change this. And then, what about that? And then, 
and look, uh, you know, end of the day, I'm Alpha Greg. I'm going to do what I do. So. <laughs> no. It was actually a very right. good impression of you. It was. Yeah, it was uh, great this Greg is going to have to take the reins back uh, a little fair, bit. I do take notes. You gave me some notes on the first script, which I thought were great, and I took them. Um, I did uh, three drafts of that first script, um, and I think it just improved. You know, certainly uh, from Nate's notes. Uh, so I, I just don't want to make it sound like I'm, uh, you know completely uncooperative i'm only largely oh no 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 it was (laughs) for for people that don't know like for people that don't know how the sausage is made it's like that when i what i first said about the enthusiasm for it's like you never my my editorial style is never to give a note like i'm not trying to give notes like my ideal working situation would be for you to turn in a script it's like you know what nothing let's send it directly to george but it's like, but it, so it's like, if I have a note, it's because something's kind of irking me and, and something's pulling at me. And, and the, the fact that, that you and I can just like kind of get into it and cut it up and um, what, you know, what I hope is mutual respect. I, I definitely got all yeah. the world for you where it's just like, look, we're, we're just, we're just talking about story. Let's make sure that we're hammering this out as hard as, so it's, it's diamond uh, hard as possible before we, before we start committing it to paper and, and yeah, it, it's just fun to chop it up like that. And I'm glad that you, I'm glad that you have such a thorough process of like, okay, but this is all tied into, because not everybody, not every comic writer does it that way. It's just like a scene followed by a scene followed by a scene, but you're threading things throughout and, you know, within the, within scenes and then within the entire issue and then the entire arc. So it's, it's yeah. good. It's good I mean, to be able to think through that stuff. I want to say All right, I'm, take, I know I'm, I'm taking the bunch, reins. I'm, hold on. No, no, wait, Greg. I got to say this first, though, just because I don't want to sound like a complete uh, jerk uh, on the record. Um, <laughs> I will say that I know a lot of writers who um, do write, uh, for lack of a better term, more stream of consciousness, and they still do fantastic stuff. Um, that's just not me. You know, that's not my process. Um, I do write, you know, trust my instincts and gut when it comes to story structure, but I've got to nail it down before I go to script, whether it's a comic book or a movie or even a novel, um, I TV show, whatever. I've got to nail it down at the outline stage. That's my process. That doesn't mean it's the only process that works. It's the only process that works for me. Um, and those aren't the same thing. So I just wanted to get that one thing in, Greg, before you moved on, just because uh, I didn't want to make it sound like I was claiming this is the one and only way that people should write stories. It's just the one and only way that I can do it. Well, believe me, I get it, especially in that thing called the Internet where things are easy to be misinterpreted and twisted. Yeah, I've noticed that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, over and over moving- and over. Moving back into the actual episode, we also meet for the first time Petro Sanitos, voiced by the late, great W. Morgan Shepard. Jen and I are pretty big fans of his son also, right, Jen? (laughs) Heck yeah. (laughs) For those who don't know, that is Mark Shepard's father. Awesome. And he did such a great job with this character, and you you, again, you give us so much with so little. I mean, right away, we we learned so much about the two of them, their different outlooks on life, and 
But Xanatos wearing that armor to meet him because he had just gotten back at that moment or a few minutes before, or did he just decide to uh, annoy his dad a little bit with that look? Uh, I think that's a fair question. Uh, And, you know, it's been so many years. I'm not sure that I can remember if we discussed that and if we did what we decided. I think it fit because he had certainly just been in that position uh, with Goliath in in the previous sequence, so it makes sense for him to be in that armor. And I, my gut is, is that for him it was just another day at work. So the fact that oh yeah, I haven't changed out of this armor yet. Well, I haven't had time. You know, uh, it was not a big deal. But then you do wonder underneath that was there this, this desire that maybe he wasn't hundred percent conscious of to be like, this is pretty impressive shit. Uh, and it makes me feel powerful and I don't mind feeling powerful when my dad is here, <laughs> um, because his dad is an imposing guy in his own right. Um, and, and, uh, and dad clearly guy. doesn't approve either. Right. Exactly. <laughs> And hasn't approved of his son in quite some time, it becomes clear. <laughs> um, and, uh, and yeah, and, and Morgan, uh, well, Morgan was a, uh, just a great human being, for starters, but, uh, but so talented, obviously. Just another great actor. I mean, this, this show, this episode has Roger Reese, um, David Warner, uh, Morgan Shepard, uh, uh, Cass Soucy, I mean, and those are just the guest stars. I mean, that, that, that's, just for, that's on top of our amazing regular cast, Keith and yeah. Jonathan Playing and Laura. And, of themselves, by the way. Oh, and fantastically yeah. doing it. Like, you yeah. know which Goliath is young Goliath just by listening to them. Yeah, same with Demona, Marina and Keith. Oh yeah, they were amazing at playing both their older and younger selves in such a way that yeah, like you said, you always know which one's speaking, even though you know the models weren't quite as different, or at least not consistently drawn as different. This is another episode where um, you know now Korea, uh, Seoul is an animation powerhouse town, but when we were doing this show, our best and best animated episodes were coming out of Tokyo and the ones that were coming from Seoul were definitely a step down. And looking at this episode, I, it's another one where I'm like, okay, I think it's working just fine, but Oh my God, if this had been done in Japan instead of Korea, um, this would have been so great, you know, because some of the posing is just really awkward and, um, and some of the characters are slightly off model and, and sometimes they're using the wrong Demona model for, you know, for one or the other of the Demonas, you know, because the differences are subtle and they didn't always catch it. And we were always on such a tight post-production schedule that we couldn't always correct it um, I mean, and get say, the show out on time. You say that, but I'll say that, like, I, I was pretty impressed, like, in the first, I don't know, like, the first four minutes when Xanatos and Goliath are fighting on the, the top of the warehouse, whatever, like th- there's like a, there's a fast rack focus 
like like I think it's Goliath yeah. gets thrown down to the ground and suddenly like zoom focus like soft focus in the background then fast focus like oh wow I have I have to point something out about that fight scene this show was lucky enough that it hardly ever used stock footage of any kind I mean it would have been so easy to just reuse shots of the gargoyles waking up. But this is almost a case of stock storyboarding. That fight at the Golden Cup between Xanatos and Goliath, it's the exact same fight as their fight on the Statue of Liberty in the Edge. The exact same choreography, just a different animation studio. And that always kind of confused me as to how that could happen. Uh, Well, A, are you sure it's true? Yes, I've looked at them both pretty much back to back. (laughs) Maybe. I mean, I, I have no memory of that. I suppose it's possible that someone just said, hey... We're going to put these two against each other. Let me just we'll change the background, and and uh, it'll wind up looking different. Um, and it saved time. I just don't remember, but it's possible. Um, well, you know, I mean, reuse footage, but, but like, are, are we sure they're fighting? Maybe they're doing dance choreography in their practice. Like it, it's clearly repainted and everything. It's not like the the exact same scene, like. So, yeah, it's yeah. not the same animation at all, yeah, but no. it could be the same. Oh, no, not at all. Just with a different background. One thing I'll, you know, you mentioned that rack focus and what's interesting between, you know, the nineties when we were making that show and like today when we're making Young Justice or something, um, that camera move and that uh, rack focus, that all had to be done in camera in Korea. Um which meant that when it came back to the U.S. for post-production, we had very little control. I mean, very little ability to alter it because it's all already in there. So it would have been in the storyboard that we sent to Korea, but they actually had to do the camera work in Korea. Nowadays, when everything's electronic and we're, we can ask for you know, every character and the background all on separate layers, um, and so in our editing phase, we could create that rack focus if we wanted to ourselves, mm-hmm. you know, and we wouldn't necessarily ask them to do it in Korea. Uh, we might, but we might not because if they do it, then we're locked in. But if we do it, then, um, we've got all this flexibility. We can control the timing of it and everything. And I did notice that last night when I rewatched the episode was that rack focus because it's pretty rare Yeah, in those nineties shows. Yeah. Because um, a camera move like that um, has to be done back then, had to be done in camera with the actual self. Um, and uh, that meant that in post-production, guys like Frank and I had very little ability to change anything about the timing. So it was used very rarely. But nowadays we do that stuff all the time because it is all things considered relatively easy um and we can fully control it with our editors here in the burbank but back then no not even a little it was all on uh soul to do that um and uh but yeah you know if it gets called for they did it um but yeah i don't think this is our weakest animated episode by any means, but it's also not one of the stronger ones. And it's too bad because I think the story merited something a little better than what we got. 
Um, but again, I think also the story and the dialogue and the performances are so strong that you almost, it, it's easy to skip over some of the weaker animation aspects of the episode, I think. Agreed. It's one of my favorites. And circling back to Petros and David, I what I love about the, the way it's written and the way the actors play it, despite the fact that Petros is pretty antagonistic at times, but you can tell these two, despite it all, they care about one another. They just don't understand one another. Yeah, I mean, it's all laden with their history. Um, and that's fun. You know, I mean, it. you... You know, you got a guy like Xanatos who sort of exists as if, you know, like Athena bursting from the, from out of Zeus, you know, like, you know, he just sort of is there. And now we're starting to say, okay, but who is this guy? Where did he come from? How did this happen? You know, um, and this episode really goes a long way towards explaining that, you know, there's no mom in the picture. Um, there's uh, a dad who is cares, clearly cares a lot, but he's tough and, and hard and fairly unbending. And then there's this coin, this antique coin worth 20 grand that got sent to a young David Xanatos, which he was then smart enough to invest and turn into a fortune, you know, a billion dollar plus fortune, right? Um, but he had this stake that he wouldn't have had otherwise. Um, and he just made the most of it. And so we begin in this episode, in, in some ways it's similar to um, Deadly Force and what we did with Elisa. You know, Elisa just was sort of there. She was a cop. And she was a cop who was friends with the gargoyle. And then suddenly in Deadly Forest, we're like, oh, she has parents, she has a brother, she has a sister who lives in Arizona, she has a cat, uh, she has a boss, and she, and she has a guy who's going to become her partner. You know, we start to build her supporting cast. Um, and in, this is where we start to do that for David as well. So you have his father, you now have his wife, and you've already got Owen. And we even introduced Judge Roebling, who's a fun little, that's Roger Reese sort of doing, you know, uh, who's a Brit through and through, right? Doing a Southern accent that I find just this side of Foghorn Leghorn. Um, and I just, and I love it. I'm not knocking it. I love it. But um, it's always makes me smile every time Roebling says anything. <laughs> All right. Um, so we have our wedding, but we also need to discuss the other meat of this episode. This is Goliath's last-ditch attempt to reach Demona. Yeah, knowing that Demona is going to be there is a, guarantees that Goliath's going to be there 100%. Poor thirsty Goliath. <laughs> <laughs> well, as we talked about last episode or the last couple episodes, really, uh, is that Goliath is starting to really have be, have become aware of his feelings for Elisa. And there's a part of him who's like, no, wait, nope, nope, can't do that. 
I uh, am mated with the Mona, gargoyles mate for life. Can't do that. No. And so I don't know that when he goes to this wedding, he's thinking, this is my last attempt. I don't think his mind works that way. I think he's thinking, this is a good place to make an attempt. I think it's by the end, having been with his angel of the night, the young Demona, again, and remembering what she was like, and then having in contrast the cynical, dismissive, um, angry Demona that he's faced with now, it becomes, that's it, I'm done. But I don't think he goes in thinking, I'm going to give her one more chance and then I'm done. I don't think he's that, uh, frankly, that pessimistic. I think he goes in thinking this could, maybe we can still connect. He's not thinking about whether it's his, her last chance or anything like, or her second to last chance or her third to last chance. You know, he's just thinking maybe I can connect with her. And then by the end, he realizes he can't. I mean, Keith has this absolutely heartbreaking speech to young Demona after the older Demona is unconscious. Um, the, the speech about, uh, you know, attend the petty jealousies and, or, and uh, anger or whatever in your heart, you know. Um, she asked, when she asked him what to do, he says, do nothing. You know, honor your vows of love and you do not need to fear this future, right? She's standing there looking at his body frozen in stone at night, and she is terrified, particularly given that she's looking at this, from her point of view, monster, older version of herself, unconscious on the ground, right? Simona's like, uh, you know, you are me, and she's like, I do not want to be you, you know, that the scenes between the scene between that Marina did with herself between uh, adult Demona and teen Demona is fantastic. And the scene between adult Goliath and teen Demona is likewise fantastic. And that to me is the real core of this episode is that exchange there. And then you get back to the present and the adult Demona recovers consciousness and that's where you see he's done where he realizes yeah, nothing has changed. She remembers everything that he's tried to, you know, convince her of here. And, and she just, um, it, it has not helped at all. Yeah. Didn't fix a damn, didn't change, didn't change the time stream, but more than that didn't affect her in any lasting way. Um, obviously it worked that night. She, broke the Phoenix gate in half and gave him half to protect herself from using it. Right. Um, but also as a declaration of love and it didn't help. It didn't, she couldn't get off the path she was headed on. And then of course the irony is, is that part of the thing that put her on that path was her older self taking her to see the massacre. Right. Um, Suddenly she's got this horrible thing on the horizon. And even though he's said to her, don't plan for this, don't do anything about this. Cause that's only going to lead you down this path. 
Instead, do these things. You know, work on yourself. Don't work on fixing history, right? Work on the things you can change, not the things you can't. And, and it didn't matter to her. She couldn't stop herself. Um, and so it becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy. Even as much as she's trying to avoid it, she ends up being the major cause of it. Not the only cause, but the major cause of it. Um, and, uh, and so he's done. And I don't think it's like I can never forgive her or anything like that. It's just he can see that the Demona that exists now, he's got nothing left. So, Greg, for the, I, I have a question. For, for the Demona speaking to younger Demona thing, am I, am I incorrect in thinking, like, are there any, like, maternal kind of undertones there, that kind of thing where it's like, I never want to grow up to become you? It's like, but you are me. You have no choice but to become me. Was there intention there? Or am I reading into that? No, I mean, I think that's there. I mean, I think that um, the older Demona, on the one hand, has some contempt for the younger Demona. Like, you just don't get it. You don't see it. But look, I know why you feel this way. I, I was there. I was you. And... Um, and look, if you only follow my lead, if you listen to what I'm saying as opposed to what this guy's going to tell you, I know what he's going to tell you because I heard it. I was in your shoes and I heard it, right? And don't listen to him. Listen to me. You'll be okay. You can fix this. You can make it all work. But, but uh, and so it is kind of like maternal advice, but you can also see that she's not a good mom. It's like... <laughs> Teenage no. Zamona rebels. When teenage Zamona rebels, it's like, okay, if I've got to beat this lesson into you, so be it. You know, mm-hmm. um, I'm doing this for your own good. You know, it's it's that horrible parent who says, "I'm beating you for your own good." Um, <laughs> uh, no, not a good plan. Um, and. Uh, and so there, you, you know, you have it, you know. Uh, but yeah, I do think there is that aspect to it. I don't think you're reading it in. I mean, I don't know that that's surface level for Demona, but uh, it's definitely in the mix. Yeah. I saw Demona's self-loathe in there, especially when she did threaten to beat the younger version of herself. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's part of it too. Absolutely. This episode also, for the first time ever, really introduces the Illuminati, and I really love how you went about doing that. First we get the little mention, then we get Silver Falcon, the Illuminati episode that turns out not to be an Illuminati episode, which I called the most Illuminati thing ever at the time. Then we get this, then we get even more in Revelations, then we wait ten years, then we get the SLG comic, and it was like walking up a long flight of stairs with a great payoff at the top. Uh, I'm glad because again, and I think we've talked about this before, the Illuminati being a part of it was not something we planned from day one. The the first Illuminati mention that Matt has is something that Michael Reeves just threw into the script. Like, Oh, he believes in, uh, he wanted Matt to be this conspiracy theorist. So he threw in a bunch of things like Loch Ness and, and I forget what the list was now, uh, but once Michael, 
that was the thing about Michael and me. Michael would throw things in as throwaways, and I'd go, oh, we've got to do something with that. And sometimes I'll be like, yeah, cool. And sometimes I'll be like, oh, come on. I just, that was just a throwaway. You don't have to do Loch Ness. I'm like, no, I want to do Loch Ness. <laughs> and Michael would sort of roll his eyes with me. And, and I would go, you put it in there. He's like, you know, um, which is not to say that he resisted it all that much. But, you know, sometimes he'd get enthusiastic about it. And sometimes he'd think I was nuts. Um, but for me, whether it's the Amir or the Illuminati, I was like, we can always find something in this stuff. And so, so we did, Carrie and I, you know, because uh, Silver Falcon wasn't one of Michael's scripts. It was one of Carrie's. Um, Carrie and I did this episode that was um, Illuminati heavy that turned out not to be an Illuminati story at all. Because I think we were sort of, I, I sort of felt like, well, that's Michael's thing. So let's save that for him a bit. And then when I was figuring out the last two acts of this story, I'm like, okay, but how does Danitos know how to do that? He takes a lot of credit for it at the end. But the fact of the matter is, is that, yes, he wrote those two letters to himself. But he wrote those letters, again, like the uh, Gettysburg Address, he wrote those letters based on what he had witnessed, Right based on the life he had already lived up to that point. But whose idea was it? He takes credit for it, but it isn't actually his idea. He gets the idea from his life, and then he sends word of that idea to his older self, or I guess a few days younger self or whatever, and that's how he knows what to do. Now, I think a lot of the details were Xanatos' work, how do I lure Goliath here? Uh, okay, I think this will lure Goliath here. But he's tremendously confident because he knows it happened. Right? But the actual idea of the thing, again, that just seems to be born with the time stream. It's a paradox. A working paradox, but a paradox. And so, you know, we just get to have fun with that, but one of the tricks to it was, okay, but how do you get a letter from yourself in the 10th century to the 20th century? And that was a problem I was having. Like, how does he inform himself of this? And I thought, oh, the Illuminati. There isn't an organization that exists in the 10th century and the 20th century. We can use them. And so I put it in there, and so it felt like we were paying off something that we'd been planning. <laughs> the truth is, is that it was just, a, you know, me using the tools that I had been handed um, to, to get this stuff across. It's like part of the trick of writing gargoyles, even for me to, today, is to constantly be reviewing what we've already done so that instead of making up a new character, I can go, oh, wait, I can use this guy. Or instead of making up something new, oh, I can use that. Like, I can use the Illuminati here to mail this letter, right? Um, and then it feels like we're such geniuses. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it's like, oh, my God, they planned this from, the, from day one. And it's like, well, maybe they did. They were playing the long game. <laughs> but some of the times... It's just about taking advantage of the tools at hand. And the trick, though, is to be constantly looking in your toolbox and going, what do I have here? What can I use? What works? What makes it better? 
if I use this character who already exists for this in this slot, is that better than using that character? And then sometimes you go, you know, I've got these five or six characters that I could use in that slot, but really I need a new character. And so I'm, and so I'm not shy about creating new characters and expanding the cast, but I also don't feel the need to do that constantly. And you always get a little more out of it if you are uh, uh, able to sort of feel like you're paying something off that was set up early. And I never tell people whether, I mean, I am here, (laughs) man behind the curtain, right? But generally speaking, you know, you don't reveal when it was something that was, yes, this was planned from day one, which occasionally it was. Like the gargoyle eggs was sort of planned from day one. Um, Or whether it's uh, something that you just discovered along the way and then were, you know, not genius, just clever enough to remember to use again. Um, And that's what this was with the Illuminati. It's fun. It is. Cycling a little back to the young Demona, I I thought it was a pretty big reveal at the time that even back then when she was good, she was still the apprentice to the Archmage, who clearly is not, to the point where he's openly talking about his ideas and plans in front of her and sending her off to steal. Right. Yeah. I mean, at this point, I think we knew that we had, you know, when we first created the Archmage and he first appeared in Long Way to Morning, this was a throwaway character. And then David Warner was just so good as the Archmage in a throwaway part that we're like, oh, we got to do more with this guy. By the time we got to this episode, this is one where, okay, yeah, we knew what our plan was for the Archmage. Uh, I'm not saying we knew every detail, but you can see that the basics are there. He's stating, I've got the Grimorum, I need this Phoenix Gate, and then once I have it, all I'll need is the Eye of Odin. Those are the three items of power. Those are the three things I need. Um, and we also went out of our way to show when Goliath doesn't just pull his half of the Phoenix Gate out of his pouch, right? He goes into this back room and you see there's the um, Grimora, there's the Eye of Odin, there's his half of the Phoenix Gate. Oh, yeah, and there's Cold Stone. Cold Stone in the corner. <laughs> in the corner, kind of comatose. But, uh, but, uh, uh, but, you know, we went out of our way in this episode to, in essence, lay the groundwork for the Avalon Tribble trilogy of episodes that's coming down the road um, because we knew where we were going by that point. You know, the, when we, the gaming company that created I of Odin, we didn't know what we were doing with I of Odin long-term. When we created uh, the Grimorum, you know, we had a few things planned for it, but we didn't know it was one of these big three magical talismans yet. But by the time we got to the Phoenix Gate, we knew, you know, it was like, here's one, here's two, Phoenix Gate is number three, um, and uh, those are the big three. And so we were, in addition to what we're doing in this episode, we were also definitely laying track for what was coming down the road. But one of the other things I wanted to do was establish a reason for why the Archmage really has a hate on for Demona, Hudson, and Goliath. Um, and so you get at least two of the three here that the archmage at the end is sort of 
pissed off at Goliath at Demona for failing him, um, and pissed off at Hudson for sort of thwarting him in that moment. And oh, they're going to pay for that someday. Not sure how or when, but someday I'm going to get even with those two. You realize at the at the end of the episode that Hudson knew what was going to happen here. Like he had already put it together uh, when Goliath. Yeah, left for to meet Xanatos. Like he knew what was going yeah. down. Yeah, there's this ambivalence he has at the beginning of the episode where he's like, "You got to decide for yourself whether you're going to do it." And Elisa, I find Elisa has got very little screen time in this episode, but it's really interesting to me how jealous she clearly is, <laughs> <laughs> even though she's already decided <laughs> this could never work. Right? This could never work. She still doesn't want to see him get back together with Demona. <laughs> and it's irrational, right? I mean, if she's decided she doesn't want him, then if, if he can make it work with Demona and bring her over to the side of the angels, wouldn't that be great? That's not how she's thinking. She's thinking, no, no, it can't work. It can't work. And, of course, consciously she's thinking because Demona's horrible, right? Um, but really, what's, I mean, it's really clear in Sally's performance that it's like uh, that she's jealous as hell um, and does not want Goliath with Demona. Um, and that's fun too, but Hudson is very ambivalent about it and very open to Goliath doing what he needs to do. And it's exactly that because he's put two and two together. He's like, this has got to be it. The adult, the older Goliath gave Hudson in the past, just enough information that now he's able to put two and two together in the present. And he knows got a pretty damn good idea of what's about to happen doesn't know how it's all going to play out or turn out can't be sure about that but he knows goliath has to go back in time so he knows goliath has to go to that castle and something else recently occurred to me while watching this had never occurred to me before and i realize this is one of those hindsight things but this is the third of the three keys to power the grimorum the eye of odin and the phoenix gate i think back to awakening and i'm thinking they were in close proximity there. The Grimorum is under glass. Goliath has his half. Demona has hers. And I'm assuming Xanatos has the eye in that castle somewhere. She's the only one who knows what they can all do. And I'm wondering if, in retrospect, that's how she was planning to betray Xanatos then. But um, obviously she lost the opportunity. Uh, maybe. Uh, it's sort of moot, so I'm not sure I've given that much thought. Um but uh, uh, she certainly knows he has the Grimorm, and she certainly knows that she has half the gate and Goliath has the other half. Whether she knows for sure that he also has the Eye of Odin, that I don't know. And I, again, because it, it was never something we needed to explore because by the time that we would have been able to figure that out, it was already moot that that would be a solution for her. So... Um, Plus, she had enough going on. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. And there's so many great moments in this episode. I love the uh, wedding scene itself where, where Fox expo- reveals her legal name. <laughs> it's Fox, yes. Just Xanatos having a great time in the Dark Ages. I love that scene he has with his father where he's clearly proud of himself. Fox is proud of him. And Petros is just still unimpressed. Nothing's facing him. <laughs> Mr. Big Shot Time Traveler. I love that line. 
<laughs> and oh, Petros being there, Petros going along with them, like, you know, like you're. If when you first watch it, you're like, okay, maybe this is going to break the ice between him and his Xanatos and his father, and you know, maybe things will. Uh, he'll see, you know, how hard he's worked to get this. And then at the end, Petros is just like, whatever, here's a penny. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, from Xantos's point of view, he's proving something. But from Petros's point of view, all he's proving is what uh, Petros has always thought of his son, which is that his priorities are screwed the hell up, you know. Um, and, uh so, you know, from his point of view, it's like about acquisition. He thinks that's all Xanatos is about. The irony is Xanatos also thinks that's all he's about. You know, David thinks, I'm about acquisition. That's what I'm about. I want a castle, I take it. I get it. You know, I want armor, I put it on. You know, I build it. I do what I need to do. It's about acquisition. I wanted a wife. I got the best wife possible. I love her. Okay, yeah, I love her. I found out I love her. It's all right, you know. <laughs> um, it doesn't prove anything. But I wanted her. She's genetically compatible. It's perfect. She and I are so in sync, which they are. Um, and it's perfect. And now I – isn't this the topper? That 20 grand gift that I got that always sort of nagged at me, just like it nags at his father because he didn't earn it. He didn't do it himself. Now – I did it myself, right? Gives the time stream no credit. He takes credit for it. It's all about acquisitions and things. Now, what we know about David, at least we know it from the long haul, because we've seen episodes ahead of the David that we're seeing in Vows, right? Um, we know that David's actually got more depth than he thinks he has. But David looks at his desire for acquisition, which includes immortality and other things he wants to acquire, right? Gargoyles, immortality, clones, whatever, right? Uh, a kid, he thinks it's acquisition, and that's a good thing, whereas Petros looks at that and says, it's just acquisition, and it's crap. It's worth nothing. So here's a penny, because that's all you care about, right? And I, just, uh, I, I think, I'm sorry, Greg, but I, I just think it's so cool to, like, in the performances and the writing, how much that comes through, because they're really talking. It's like you say that like his dad's calling him on this stuff and he's like, yeah, yeah, exactly. And like, they're talking past each other in a way, like they're both agreeing, but because their right. reference and values are so different that it's just like, yeah, all you want is this. Yeah. All I want is this, but that's all you are. Yeah. That's all I am. And it's just like, but it's so what the other thing I love about it and its performance and in the writing is that like he wants Xanatos. It's like he want you talk about like he, he it's about acquisition, like he wants literally everything, including the approval of his father who will never approve of him. And so this whole thing is so I mean, he he's so performative in his cleverness and his genius and like. Just like look, check it out. Like I'm, I'm doing loops around the time, around the concept of time and worth and value, and I'm doing it all, and I'm doing it in front of you. Aren't you impressed? And it's like, no, no, I'm not. <laughs> just right. You're still just this. And like, then yeah, I'm this. Yeah. And then the thing is, is that once we had put Fox and Xanatos on this track, 
we also knew that we were going to have them have a kid. And so we had a long, this, we did have a long-term plan again, some things we planned in advance and some things we didn't. But one thing that we did is that, okay, we're, we knew we were going to have a kid. And so this is in a way as complete a picture as it paints in this episode. We also knew just as, you know, that moment in, um, I the beholder when Xanatos realizes that he actually loves Spock and views that as a weakness until Goliath and Owen sort of point out that maybe it's not a weakness. Maybe it's a good thing. Um, we also knew we were going to give them a kid and that that would be the biggest thing to change Xanatos and that that change would be the thing that Petros respected. So now we're getting way ahead of ourselves because we're way, way before the episodes where the kid is born, right? But, um, but you know, that's coming um, down the road, and that's something we were aware of. I mean, we weren't aware of it back in season one, but in terms of season two, that was something that we were like, okay, we're going to put these two together. They're going to get engaged. They're going to get married. She's going to get pregnant. She's going to have a kid. And that, is, and we're going to watch how that changes both, both Fox, Xanatos, and their relationship with their assorted parental figures. And so this was something that, um, again, not like we'd written dialogue for The Gathering, which is 40-plus episodes from now, right? But, uh, but we knew that that was on the horizon and we had that in mind in establishing what their core relationship, that is Petros and David's core relationship was here. We had in mind that it was going to go somewhere down the road. Before we get to the most infamous aspects of this episode, unfortunately, uh, Janet, do you have any other questions or comments about this episode? Um, was it, I don't know if it was when I was talking to you earlier, Greg, um, but the coin that Xanatos sends himself in 1975, it's worth $20,000. Just a fun fact, that would be $111,000 in today's dollars. <laughs> That's what his whole investment is. <laughs> Starts nice. With. Nice. I'm really bad with numbers. I, mean, I would never figure that out. Yeah, me neither. But but that was the idea. The idea that it was a big chunk of money to a fisherman's son from Bar Harbor, Maine, right? And yet, it pales in comparison to what he's built since, right? Right. It's between 1975 and 1994. Um, he's built this empire, this billion-dollar empire, right? Um, probably multi-billion um certainly by today's dollars he'd be a multi-billionaire um and and it all came from 20 grand which is not nothing but you know if you wanted to you could spend 20 grand on a weekend in vegas right i mean you could uh and clearly he took that 20 grand and did some i mean i don't know all the details i don't need to know all the details but he did some really smart stuff with that money. And again, if you got a hundred grand or 111 or I forget what number you just said to me three seconds ago, but, um, uh, 
if you got a hundred grand today, that's a big chunk of change. And none of us would, you know, none of, certainly none of the people on this call would, uh, would turn it down. Right. But, <laughs> um, but it's also, it's not a, it's not a, a fortune, right? You know, it's not like, Oh, I'm set for life. Cause I've got a hundred grand. Um, it, but the notion that you could take that and turn that into multiple billion dollars, that means he's a bright, bright guy. I mean, there's no denying that just because he didn't come up with all this, what he did with it is what's important. But, uh, he's still David Xanatos, but now he's David Xanatos who got this boost out of the time stream, which is just fantastic but it doesn't change the fact that he still built all this because we didn't want to undercut him. Right. You know, we wanted this to be fun and to be, uh, just this cool origin. Right. But we didn't want to use it to undercut him. We wanted to use it to make you even more impressed. With Mission accomplished for me. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Now the big controversy. <laughs> The infamous uh, wrong ending. Yeah. Which was so confusing the first time around. Well, it continues to be confusing. It continues to, because the DVD and Disney Plus and Toon Disney have all put the wrong ending. I have a theory as to how that one happened. Okay. I, okay. I, in I don't May need of theory. I, I know how it happened. Okay. Um. Then you go on. How did it happen? <laughs> well, I mean, initially, uh, it was just boarded wrong. Um, and I'm like, no, it's not the clock tower. This is a flashback scene. Um, this is Goliath's memory. It's a flashback to the castle. It can't be the clock tower. So. Whoever boarded it said, well, if I do it at the clock tower, I can do this cool visual with the face of the clock. You know, every once in a while, a storyboard artist will sort of fall in love with a visual without realizing how it affects story. Um, And somehow or other, uh, this went out to overseas. And it was animated that way, and it looks pretty good. I'll admit it. It looks better than the real ending. It's just wrong. Um, it implies that Demona shows up at the clock tower after this whole episode, and they reconcile. Now, fans have rationalized it because they needed to, because it makes no sense, and so he doesn't fit what comes later in further episodes. They've rationalized, oh, this is Goliath's fantasy in that moment. But that's not right either, because Goliath is no longer fantasizing about that. Uh, Goliath is remembering what's lost. He's not fantasizing about getting it back. He's past that. So then we get this thing back. And again, as I mentioned earlier, our, uh, we had air dates, you know, uh, and you cannot miss an air date, right? That's the cardinal sin of television back in the days when before streaming, right? You know, I mean, we had an air date. We could not miss it. And that scene came back wrong, and there was not time to fix it. So the first time it aired, it aired with that ending at the clock tower. Um, And we locked the episode that way because we didn't have a choice. 
but we knew we had to fix it. So we sent it back and they were fixing it and it got back in time for the second airing. And there's a problem with that second version of the ending, which is correct in that it's a flashback to them at the castle in medieval times, which is what we wanted. But, you know, the scene wasn't built that way in the storyboard. So it's kind of crappy looking. Whereas the original version of it looks beautiful, it's just wrong. The second version is right, but just looks okay, right? So, so in syndication, that begins to air as the correct thing, and that's fine. But the problem is, is that we had locked the episode with the original ending, but incorrect ending. And so anytime anyone goes back and pulls the episode, unless they know, they're going to pull the original locked version of the show. And they don't know to look for version two. They don't even think to look for that. And believe me, they're not the people who are putting this up on DVD or putting it up on TV on Disney plus. They're not going through these episodes and going, Hmm, I wonder if that's the right ending. They're not going online to look at ask Greg and find out whether or not, you know, uh, there are two endings for this. They're not doing research. They're just looking for it. At best, what they're doing is going through it and going, oh, is there too much blood? Is there a place that we have to edit this thing because uh, it's too uh, gritty or, or dark or whatever? You know, they're definitely not looking at story subtleties or background subtleties, right? Um, not that this is subtle, but still. So they just go with the first version all the time. Now, occasionally I've been able to go to them and go, hey, wrong version. Uh, and most of the time they say, well, too late. Um, and, uh, and occasionally they fix it, and most of the time they don't. And to be honest, on Disney+, Plus, I haven't even tried. A, because I don't know who to talk to, per se. And, I mean, in other words, I could call someone at Disney TV Animation and hope that the message got down the road, right, to the right people at Disney Plus, but it just seems fruitless, you know, so I just, I'm letting it go. I have to be zen about it because I just can't, I don't think I can fix it. And I also, again, a lot of people have said to me, I like the first one better. And artistically, I get that, but it's still wrong and it's confusing as hell. From a Very much so, it's, yeah. It's just it just really doesn't work um, on any level because it's, it, it's definitely not what happens literally. And it's not what Goliath is imagining. He is not imagining a, a reconciliation. That's not where his head is at. What he is remembering is the past, this moment that's lost and gone. That's the point of the scene. And yet we don't get that from the quote unquote original ending, which is incorrect. So it's sort of, again, one of these eternal frustrating moments for me in the series that at some point you just learn to live with because uh, what else are you going to do? <laughs> I will say that save for this episode and then the later edit to Deadly Force, all the episodes around the DVDs and on Disney Plus were the later corrected versions. 
my theory on how this one happened was, at least for the DVD, I remember at the time in May of 2005, an employee of Buena Vista named Chad came into the S8 comment room and started asking people for what they wanted to see on the DVDs. And you confirmed he was legit, so a lot of people started saying, I want to see as an extra the old vows ending. Which made me wonder if, because if they took that and pasted it on the rest of the corrected episode, because I had both versions of the episode on tape for a while, and there were other retakes that were done. The other retakes are in there. It's just that ending was pasted there. Uh, Freaking chat. Yeah, I don't remember. I just don't remember. Greg, I, I, feel, I feel bad about this, but this is as good a place as any to let you know that Disney actually did call me and ask me to remove your last page of the first issue and replace it with a screenshot <laughs> in this episode. Um, they just said it's more artistic. I didn't know what that meant at the time, but this gives me a lot, a lot more context for what that means. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot less funny than you think it is, Nate. <laughs> <laughs> Still, you know what? Wrong ending aside, it's a spectacular episode. So much happens in it. And uh, is there anything we missed? Because this is, episode is bursting at the seams. Uh, my, my, I just have... Uh... It's kind of a comment, and Greg will be familiar with this note. Uh, not enough Bronx. Why? Never. Well, we know what cover you're buying. Not <laughs> enough Bronx. And I feel like th- there's going to reach a point where I think Greg knows. That I've, I've, I've not been shy about saying that Bronx is by far my favorite character. And it's, like, it, it's going to reach a point where like, if he's not... You know, if he's not the main character by issue six, all of the covers are just going to be Bronx's face. <laughs> I'm going to be I'm going to be hiring, you know, Jay Lee and David Nakayama to just draw Bronx's face, which, you know, seems like a waste of money, but it's not my money and I'm willing to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Greg, I like this guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I got to get Bronx. There, I have to admit, there isn't a ton of Bronx in the first set of issues, and and I know it's driving uh, Nathan crazy. And honestly, that's not why that's happening. Um, not that I don't love to drive my editors crazy, but well, you heard the three drafts. Like dra- draft one was like you know three good notes, and then like more Bronx, and then you know he turns it in. Right. Yeah. Okay, but you didn't address the important note, and then third is like oh. I created gargoyles. <laughs> I want more Bronx. I want more Bronx too. I just, uh, uh, yeah, I gotta, I gotta address that sooner than later. I guess, yeah, get more Bronx in sooner than later. And, and uh, you know, the thing about being an editor is that at the end of every single page, there could be little asterisks and an editorial note explaining what Bronx was doing during this scene. So for all my Bronx heads out there, they know what kind of adventures he was getting up to. No. <laughs> now I just want a fanfic that's like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. It's just Bronx during every episode now. <laughs> it's not, see, it's not fanfic. It's editorial fic. Yeah. <laughs> I'm your avatar. I'm your advocate. I'm the Bronx advocate. You just got to get me that Bronx spinoff series and you'll get done. Uh, <laughs> I'm drawing it. So. Okay. <laughs> Uh, there's two beats now. There's Foo Dog. <laughs> uh-huh. I know. Bronx and Foo Dog. Mm-hmm. We got them both in the series, but clearly not enough for, for our friend Nate here. So, um, you know, you got to get Boudica in there and that other one from Ishimura. And... I need more. 
I need more page space to focus on. Mm-hmm. Don't go to London because there are no beasts. <laughs> I suppose it'd be redundant at this point, but since we're about to wrap up, do you both have anything that you would like to plug? I got this Gargoyles comic coming out in December. Um, so I'll plug that. And then I'll also plug Young Justice Targets, which is coming out uh, through December. So uh, please check that out, too. Uh, I got a Gargoyles comic coming out in December. Uh, and I've also, I'm editing other stuff. There's a James Bond comic I'm editing that's, uh, written by Philip Kennedy Johnson, drawn by Marco Finnegan. That's really good right now. And, uh, a few different Red Sonia things and such like that. And otherwise, yeah, just, uh, just plugging away. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And I just want to say as a positive on the way out, the reaction to these first pieces of artwork and what we've seen so far has been almost universally positive. The worst comment I've ever seen I'd seen was, oh, I wish that art had been a little bit more detailed, but overall <laughs> across the board, people seem to really enjoy it. There isn't any controversy surrounding uh, it or anything, which um, yeah, unfortunately there that. was a little bit back in the SLG days, but hopefully we'll not revisit that. So, um, but uh, everyone seems to be really excited. <laughs> Yeah, the uh, I, I know that the the gargoyles fandom is is a very vocal group and uh, a passionate group and and yeah, you I think he's been yeah. he's been warned. Okay, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm very yeah, I'm, I'm very appreciative of all the positive vibes so far. Uh, I can I can just tell you if you love if you love the original series and what what Greg brought to that, you're you're really going to enjoy what we're giving you here. Excellent. And of course, we always appreciate someone who, you know, keeps Greg on his toes. Third Greg. So thank you very much. Thank you. I want to thank you for coming on, Nate. It was a pleasure to meet you and hopefully we'll chat with you again sometime. And Greg the Alpha, because it sure as hell isn't me on this thing. Thank you again for everything you do. I really look forward to it. I'm super jazzed. Jen, thank you once again for being the best partner in crime there is. And to our listeners, thank you for listening. This is just about as dense as the episode, I think, which is a good thing. And join us next time for City of Stone, Part 1. A simple American penny. It's not worth much now, but in a thousand years, who knows? It's my wedding present to you, because it's all you seem to care about. 